0: So Hello, Kamal. Uh, it's nice to finally um, be able to uh, chat with you uh, rather than text message all the time. Um, I think to begin with, it would be great if you could introduce yourself uh, to the listeners, uh, who you are and what your area of speciality and interest is. Thank you very much,
1: Onik. It's a pleasure to finally get the chance to speak uh, to you in this setting. We planned this for some time, but uh, finally we get the chance. My name is Kamal Mikhail Aliyev. I work uh, as a lecturer in Malmö University in Sweden. I also teach in Gothenburg University, also in Sweden. My area of expertise is international law and human rights. That's my primary area of expertise. And of course, I have a specialty there, which is the international law and conflict resolution. Uh, Also a little bit of uh, peace and conflict studies. And my regional area are the post-Soviet states. And if you connect those two, these are the conflicts in the post-Soviet states, and my conflict of specialty
0: is the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Okay, and and perhaps we should, um, obviously your name gives it away, but you're from Azerbaijan. Yes, I'm originally from Azerbaijan. So just uh, we'll go into that in, in more detail, but first of all, I just wondered, seeing as it's now 15 months since the November 2020 ceasefire agreement, um, just where do you personally think Armenia and Azerbaijan are today?
1: Well, my personal opinion is that Armenia and Azerbaijan are right now on the path uh, to the normalization of relations. And this sounds very hopeful. And I, th- I think it's, it is actually very hopeful to where Armenia and Azerbaijan are headed. I haven't been that optimistic for a very long time. But I right now see the signs that we are getting into the, you know, very careful, very cautious, very scary, but the path on some kind of normalization of relations uh, after uh, 30 years of enmity between the two states. This is the first hopeful glimpse of the light that I, that I see uh, as credible.
0: Yeah, I think it's a pity that this couldn't have been resolved a long, long time ago. And sadly, um, the the, the war happened. But um, one of the... So we had the ceasefire agreement. You know, everyone knows what that is. Um, And Aliyev, uh, President Aliyev, um, you know, quite openly said there's no reference to status. Um, Armenians um, consider that status is an issue. Uh, and the Russians and others uh, believe that it should anyway be deferred to a much later um, period uh, when maybe the conditions are right for an actual discussion like this to to happen. But this is really where your um, research or studies or interest is, right? How do you resolve the issue of um, uh, the ethnic Armenians living uh, within the four, what's left of the former Nagorno-Karabakh autonomous Oblast? Um, so I just wondered if you would you would like to introduce you know w- w- how you're viewing this and 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 whether or not you have any ideas I guess. Well, uh, I do have an idea, and 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 since I've been
1: engaged in the research of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, I did pursue that exact question of how would it be possible to uh, negotiate a solution that would allow for the uh, Azerbaijan to be able to maintain its territorial integrity, but at the same time would allow the Armenians uh, to live in Azerbaijan within their own uh, autonomous, um, so to say, autonomous solution that would give them both territorially, culturally, uh, linguistic-wise, and uh, all the other issues in the complex a, a space to develop but within the borders of Azerbaijan. And one of the cases that have uh, been coming up uh, to my attention for a very long time until I finally engaged with it and did a comparative research between Nagorno-Karabakh conflict are the precedent of the Oland Islands. And those are the islands that used to have a strategic importance in the Baltic Sea and that lie uh, between the Finland and Sweden and belong to Finland. However, in the beginning of the uh, 20th century, uh, and more precisely, uh, right when the, all the cataclysmic events of the uh, collapse of the Imperial Russia and the creation of Soviet Union started to happen, and with the independence of Finland from Imperial Russia, that question of the Holland Islands and their belonging uh, came into the front between the Sweden and Finland. And what happened there is that the population of the islands was historically Swedish speaking uh, for a very long time and had this, a lot of a Swedish culture in it and generally have been consisting uh, of this very close and tight community with already um, a history of being quite autonomous because the Holland Islands are an archipelago of islands were very specific ways of living and culture, et etc cetera, etc, cetera. Uh, but to which the Finland has a sov- had a sovereign claim um, the Åland islands and the Åland islanders were, were very much concerned about the preservation of their way of living, and they uh, have been concerned about what the main uh, land Finland as a new state is going to turn out to be, how is that going to impact them, and they sought naturally, the help of the kin-state of Sweden uh, to be able to, to protect them, and maybe even uh, regain the sovereignty which Sweden had over islands uh, several centuries before that. And the conflict started brewing between the Sweden and Finland. There were um, deployment of troops, of both Finnish troops and Swedish troops, on the territory of the islands, couple of skirmishes, attempts of Finland, to uh, basically come up with kind of solutions with the Hollanders, which have failed. And the conflict started brewing, the real conflict started brewing between Sweden and Finland. At that time, the League of Nations, the, the predecessor of United Nations, have started a, a process of mediation, mediation between the between the sides. And that case was referred to the League of Nations by the, um, states that, that have been at the core of founding that international organization, uh, France and Britain. And it was a very interesting case that the League of Nations was able to settle through basically uh, establishing an autonomous status for the Island Islands and guarantees by the organization that this stat- status is going to hold. And that autonomous status included several very, very uh, important points. Uh, a very wide, uh, wide self-governing structures that would ensure that the Hollanders have uh, enough power to be able to decide on the local, uh, on the local issues themselves. Uh, they would there would be a connection to the state budget of Finland, so Finland would be sponsoring the autonomy. Uh, there would be uh, all the preconditions for using the language and culture and preserving it. Uh, there was a special regime for acquisition of property on the islands. So that it wouldn't be possible to basically buy out the property from islanders and resettle it with a, a different, um, uh, for example, Finnish speaking population. And all that, that preconditions for the, for the thriving self autonomy, but also two other things, the minority rights regime and um, the focus on the neutralization uh, and demilitarization of the islands. So to say that, that they will never be used uh, in and for the military purposes. And if you are by, by now uh, having uh, a little bit of a confusion to where, where and how does that relate to Nagorno-Karabakh, I think uh, we would first start with pointing to the fact that, you know, in the 19th century, Nagorno-Karabakh and Nolan Islands were the part of the same state. Russia, right? And the withdrawal from that state is what created a lot of uh, territorial questions. So, ri- right in the same way as the Oland Islands became a territorial issue due to the withdrawal of the empire, so uh, have the Oland Islands. And uh, in this sense, the, the roots of the problems of these territorial conflicts are very much on the same historical plane. But more than that, they, they ponder the same questions the questions of autonomy the questions of not being used as strategically uh, by the regional states and by the uh, greater powers for the military purposes, so that there would be some kind of a peaceful existence there, um, and, of course, the minority rights. And all that makes the comparisons between Nagorno-Karabakh conflict and Hollandaise, I think, very interesting, uh, but also very revealing, uh, if you would take a look at my research.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, I, I understand all, all what you said. Uh, of course, that's Europe and not the South Caucasus, where uh, emotions usually get overcharged. And I, I'm not quite sure that anyone in Armenia or Azerbaijan is quite ready to consider these things. Uh, and sometimes I wonder if, if the situation is not just going to be bogged down for decades and you know, in, in much the same way that um, Cyprus and, and northern Cyprus uh, are uh, Am I being too pessimistic?
1: I think you are. And I also think that, that the, the comparison of the characters between the South Caucasus and the Nordic countries is very superficial. I would say uh, at the emotional state that the Nordic countries have been, so like Finland and Sweden have been, over that case, was no less dramatic than you would see in the Caucasus. Um, I think it's it's, uh, this argument that that the Azerbaijan and Armenia, not Sweden and Finland, um, doesn't stand to the scrutiny simply because the the people uh, are emotional about those things, especially when it comes to their own culture and to their own way of living and to the territory where they lived and which they perceive as historically important for them. And all those questions have been raised during the, the case of the Holland Islands. What differs in this in the sense is not the people's emotions uh, in those two cases, but how the states chose to handle it. And I mean uh, to put the emphasis here on the states and not on the peoples, mm, because to a to a certain degree, there is the end of the people's responsibility when it comes to the interstate conflicts, um, and the much more greater responsibility of the states as entities than the peoples. And it's their choices, the states' choices, that will actually predetermine how the conflict is going to go. And it's exactly what happened uh, in, uh, in what is different in the case of Oland Islands and uh, the case of uh, armenian azerbaijan conflict, is because the choices of the states were not the same. And this is, this is the part where there is a need for Armenia and Azerbaijan to start considering more and more the resolution of, of those issues in through the arbitration, in the courtroom, rather than uh, through uh, constant political bickering uh, and the sometimes fruitless negotiations where the uh, sides claim absolutely opposite, uh, so to say, they have absolutely opposite claims. This is exactly the situation that should be, the you know res- resolved by a court of law and that would happen in the case of oland islands basically the court-like structure of an international organization mediated oh, i'm sorry arbitrated between the not mediated arbitrated between the two sides and asked for them to agree to the decision before the decision was made and both states went with that and that was that difference that political will uh, that is needed to resolve uh, the dispute. In much the same way, this can be done uh, in case of the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. There, there is a possibility, and we already see that there the are attempts to settle those things in a civilized way, in, in the courtroom, when it comes uh, to the questions uh, of uh, discrimination against each other's peoples right? So we have seen the cases going to ICJ. I think it's a very hopeful sign, right? That it is not this toxic political uh, bickering, and it's not just a hand pointing that's going on. Let, let it be settled by the international court. And I think that can be also, as an experience, should be a- encouraged uh, and not criticized. And that sh- such kind of a behavior, that civilized behavior, uh, should lead to its extrapolation on the uh, larger issues that we see. So we have a sort, of, uh, sort of, a, of international agreement on the table. We know what the sides need to do. Are there disagreements about it? Why not take it to the court? I'm not sure if everyone agrees to, to, to that or with that position, but that's what I firmly believe in,
0: Onik. So yeah, I remember now that you're a strong believer in arbitration. And um, yeah, we have had that precedent of the International Court of Justice. Uh, Perhaps it's interesting for listeners if you... So there hasn't been a final decision or judgment, though, right? These are preliminary measures, which will then be, um, I guess, uh, put out in more detail. But, But how do you enforce whatever the International Court of Justice decides?
1: That is, a, that is a great question. I mean, the decision of the International Court of Justice has a strong moral weight by itself. So uh, whenever you have a decision of the International Court of Justice, um, you're going to feel the pressure of other states t- in following this. Because in each and every political opportunity, this case is going to be raised and you as a state are going to be asked, have you fulfilled the requirements that the International Court of Justice uh, put on you? True, the the physical ways are very limited. And if the Security Council finds that going against the decision of the International Court of Justice is uh, threatening the international peace and security, the the Security Council can take measures. So there can be uh, a resolution about it, and the state can be, uh, you know, first encouraged, and then... uh, and then pushed into the action, into the implementation of a decision um, by Articles 41 and 42 of the UN Charter, uh, first with the economic, uh, non-military measures, and then even with the military measures. But that is, of course, and I, and I do understand that this is a theoretical possibility. And in the cases uh, of the discrimination, uh, that might sound unlikely. But the political and moral pressure of this kind of judgment is uh, huge. I mean, it's going to be constantly haunting a state not to follow on, uh, on the obligations that come from the decision of International Court of Justice.
0: So from a legal perspective, I'm also interested in, in um, this uh, perpetual or perennial issue of uh, territorial integrity versus self-determination. Um, one of the problems of the Karabakh conflict is, is, has been this uh, this. this um, supposed contradiction. Although when we actually look into self-determination, we can talk about internal self-determination and external self-determination. Um, are these two concepts uh, incompatible? They are absolutely
1: compatible. I think uh, there is a misunderstanding, especially when it comes to the political scientists and the specialist international relations. They misinterpret the, the norms of international law and that's where the misconceptions come about. And then you have, of course, the journalists that also look superficially at uh, certain issues and then feed that narrative in, into the media. The connections between the, the, the territorial integrity and the people's right to self determination um, have been produced by the inclusion of both of the principles in the UN Charter. So the states with basically saying goodbye to part of their sovereignty when they signed the UN Charter, wanted to ensure that there is not going to be a wars of conquest So after the World War II so that the territory is not going to be a reason to invade another country. And that's where the, the principle of territorial integrity and inviolability of the borders came in into the UN Charter, to ensure that the nation-states we will not go into the conquest wars. So one state is not going to be expanding its territory uh, the, on behalf of other state. So this is the territorial um, integrity in principle. The principle of self-determination was put there in order to ensure that the peoples of the colonies can create their own states. So that we would be able to raise the question with the uh, former host state, the the colonial state, and have a peaceful separation from that state to form their own states, because the concept of a nation state predetermined that peoples can determine their political faith uh, on their own. And the whole idea of this principle is tied to the process of decolonization. Now, when the process of decolonization was over and all the peoples that would like to use the principle have used it with the various um, degrees of success also duly noted. But still, uh, when the decolonization process was over, the question arose, what to do with non-peoples, with minorities? So ethnic minorities, national minorities, which are mainly located in Europe, uh, religious minorities and linguistic minorities, because they by definition an in international law don't have a uh, right to self determination but they still have a sizable amount of minority rights and then there was this concept this academic concept of internal self determination but minorities may have a right which is not uh, included in any kind of uh, international agreements yet but it is uh, a quite valuable and I would say, valid concept, but they do have a right to internal self-determination. So without uh, being able to raise the question before the state, before your host state, of separation, of external self-determination, they could raise the question of their linguistic rights, their cultural rights, uh, their political autonomy in many ways, in order to be able to preserve the minority status and minority rights. And that is what we're talking about in case of Holland Islands, because that, that's how the internal self-determination basically uh, started to function without even being an, uh, accepted in academia yet, or even talked about in the political discourse, is when the League of Nations said that there should be a balance between uh, the minority issues and the territorial integrity of the state taken to this matter, and the decision to grant a large-scale autonomy without threatening the sovereignty of Finland uh, was made. So basically, that was that expression uh, of internal self-determination. Another misconception about the external self-determination is that it always... Uh, means the right to secession, which is false. The whole idea of a principle of territorial integrity and the sovereignty of a state means that you cannot really do that on a whim. Otherwise, we could uh, basically desiccate the state into the small entity that includes uh, two people plus. I mean, so it's it's going to be infinite, infinite uh, number of states can be created. Uh, limited only by the number uh, of groups of peoples of two (laughs) in the world, if that would be true. So the idea of external self-determination is also not the right to secession, but the right to raise such a question. Um, And if you want an example of that kind of uh, situation, first, of course, is decolonization processes, because there was already a global political agreement that the colonies are going to go and become independent. And that's why they all raised those questions in, in front of the former sovereigns uh, and negotiated divorces that went on with, uh, in uh, South America, in Asia, in Africa, etc., etc., etc. And mm, when it comes to uh, the parts of the world that are even more disputable, for example, American Indians... Uh, or in Sweden and Finland, there are Samis that live in La- uh, Lapland areas of those countries. Uh, those are indigenous peoples. They also have the right to self-determination. So theoretically, if they would raise um, the question about separation, the state needs to take that seriously and enter into negotiations with them if it would be possible to grant, grant them ability to separate. The same thing happened in the case of Sudan when Sudan split in two. That was also uh, a part of the process of self-determination where you uh, negotiated the separation with a host state which is now uh, called the Sudan or the northern part of Sudan now have a South Sudan as an independent state. All those examples uh, are the legitimate examples of the use of the right to external self-determination. And when we talk about the situation such as in, in case of Oland Islands and Nagorno-Karabakh where we have uh, ethnic and religious minorities or s- linguistic minorities, there the, the internal self-determination is this legal way to be able to address the issues with the minority rights, address the issues and concerns about both security and also self-governance questions. So it kind of encompasses all those, all those package of issues um, to be able to um, balance it out with the territorial integrity of the state.
0: Okay. Um, this kind of... Uh, well, first of all, I forgot to say something earlier. It isn't, of course, just um, about ethnic Armenians in the Gona Karabakh. There's also the issue of the ethnic Azerbaijani community that... Um, had to leave uh, in the 90s, and it's said that there are discussions, private discussions, about uh, the return, uh, especially uh, to Stepanakert, what Azerbaijanis called Khankendi, uh, and also to Hojali, um district. Um, this also, however, presupposes that, first of all, the ethnic Armenian and ethnic Azerbaijani communities probably need to start speaking to each other, uh, and also that maybe Baku needs to start speaking to the de facto uh, Nagorno-Karabakh um, authorities. However, this doesn't seem to be as positive as perhaps Armenia-Azerbaijan um, potential for normalization. For example, this week we saw the de facto authorities in, in Karabakh adopt a, a bill saying that the seven regions outside Nagorno-Karabakh autonomous uh, oblast are Um, uh, occupied by Azerbaijan. And actually, some Armenian analysts, including one from Nagorno-Karabakh, said that this was the most dangerous thing that they could have done, which totally delegitimizes them in the eyes of the international community and also puts Armenia at a great disadvantage uh, in any normalization talks with, with Azerbaijan. And it just strikes me that this issue is really going to be a very sensitive and very difficult one. And yet, uh, by the terms of the nine-point ceasefire agreement, either... I know people say the Russians never leave, but, um, you know, potentially we have the deadline of 2025 um, or 2030. And I just wonder, do you think we can actually um, resolve these issues uh, by either of those dates? Um,
1: I think... It would be possible to uh, to resolve those issues if the countries will uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan will step on the gas a little bit. Um, I do understand the challenges to that process. I do think that it is it's not worth concentrating on the controversies around the uh, Nagorno Karabakh right now. I think it's the best way to to go forward is uh, through the normalization. Of the relationship between Armenia and Azerbaijan and see how that is going to impact and influence uh, the dynamic uh, of the situation around Nagorno-Karabakh itself. Um, if that is going to, to be positive, then I think uh, the issues that we're looking on right now will simply become irrelevant. should the normalization happen. And I think right now there is that opportunity I see the steps, very slow one, very grudging steps, but steps forward, uh, especially when it comes from the Armenian side uh, of uh, the whole deal to, against all odds, against all the internal pressures to go with the agreements on the unlocking of the uh, transport routes, especially when it comes to the train transportation to try to push the issue forward on the uh, car uh, transportation, so to say, on the automobile connections, and to uh, at least negotiate on the common work on the delimitation of the border, uh, which is, of course, I understand, linked to the whole question of the territorial integrity and uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh as a region. But again... Uh, those issues can be uh, left uh, in a little bit of a suspense to give the chance to the issues where the connections have already been established to come to fruition and to positively impact the later stage uh, for the resolution of the other outstanding issues. That is my hopeful uh, that is my hopeful so to say framework that I have in my head. Maybe I am over optimistic, but I but In as many years as I've been looking at this uh, conflict, that's the first time I'm truly hopeful that there is a gateway towards the positive change.
0: So I actually, I mean, I I agree with you, and I hope that economic interdependency uh, will be a major factor, uh, something that has never existed before, in fact. Um, I think I also agree with effectively deferring the issue, this issue, uh, until a later date when everything else is in place. And I felt like that for well over a decade now. And arguably, it could be said that Levon Petrosyan came to realize this in 1997. And unfortunately, it led to his downfall. Um, and a lot of time was wasted um, since. And, and Gerard Liberidian uh, has um, always uh, made the point that he he believes that it will be some kind of non-territorial uh, autonomous status uh, for the um, ethnic Armenians. Or, I mean, again, we should point out that there will be ethnic Azerbaijanis at some point, but for the majority ethnic Armenian community. And he he talks about it being something similar to say the the ethnic Armenians living in, in Istanbul. Um, I, if you'd like to, to, to add on to anything uh, that I just said there, or uh, in fact, if you'd like to add anything to end, uh, you know, even if it's your hopes, maybe for the future.
1: Well, I think that there is a, a lot to to do in the relationship between the states, but I think mending those relations first and foremost, normalizing them somehow, um, is the path forward right now. The most obvious and the most credible path forward right now, and that would also mean that at some at some point the negotiations about the fate of the Azerbaijan and armenian community in Nagorno-Karabakh and how that is going to look is going to be not uh, competitive, but cooperative. So at some point, it might become uh, a common interest rather than the dividing factor. And that's what um, I'm hoping to see from the process of normalization between Armenia and Azerbaijan, that the issue becomes equally, positively important for both states.
0: So uh, Richard Giragosyan always says, and he's he, although he's specifically talking about um, Armenia-Turkey normalization, that normalization does not mean reconciliation and that it is actually um, the minimum that needs to happen. And then, only then, can it be built upon. Um, I guess you, you, you would probably agree with that.
1: Yes, I agree with Richard on on, on that part. But I mean, uh, it is true that without normalization, the reconciliation is not possible. And reconciliation is a slow and painful process. And it should be considered as such, and it should be accepted as such. And it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be painless, and it's not uh, going to be without hiccups. But without the normalization of relations between the states because this conflict is territorial it is between the two states and all the other issues have been built upon that foundation without getting that out of the of the picture without establishing the relations where the Armenian Azerbaijan can cooperate and not compete it would not be possible to start this process of reconciliation i'm not saying that it should not be attempted because again every positive change counts But the final success of the reconciliation is not possible without normalization. And it's not uh, possible in a very short time, in the short term. The reconciliation is, unfortunately, a long-term process. And this should be accepted, I would say, without pointing to the situation where, oh, you know, it's not working, let's not do it. No, we should definitely do it, but we should all be ready that it's going to take a lot of time and uh, a lot of effort. Um, and that's uh, how it should be perceived and taken upon the shoulders of both peoples, because that's where
0: they have responsibility even more than the two states have. And I think that's an excellent point to uh, end on. Kamal, a great pleasure to finally speak to you, and I hope one day we can uh, uh, discuss all these things in person.
1: I think so too. Thank you very much for, for having me uh, on the podcast and uh, I hope to speaking to you soon.